Hello, and welcome to Scare You to Sleep. I'm your host, Shelby Scott. It's that time again for some true stories from you, the listeners. We've got some real doozies this time around. I got I got so many submissions. So many this time. Thank you to all who submitted. And I'm so sorry. This is the first time this has happened, I think. But I couldn't get to all of them. I couldn't get to every single one. Um, this episode ended up so long already. I couldn't do every story I got. And like I said, I think this is the first time that's happened. And I feel awful about it. But it just was not feasible and I was incredibly touched and surprised at the amount of stories I received. This is definitely a supersized episode. It has everything from the paranormal to <laughs> the very last story where our submitter tells us the harrowing tale of escaping her kidnappers. So grab your favorite beverage and settle in for quite the terrifying evening. And just a reminder, all of these stories have been told to me by the submitters that they are 100% true. So as far as I am aware, these are true stories. I wanted to start with an update from the last dark Reddit episode. For those who listened, you'll remember the story of The Whistler and the very scary video that I linked and I also played the audio of. Well, I thought, what's a better way to start off a true horror episode than with a terrifying callback to that from listener Hannah? She wrote, Hi Shelby, I just heard your most recent episode and I am freaking out about the Whistler story and the subsequent legends in Venezuela and Colombia. When I was last in Colombia, I also heard a whistler at night, a repetitive whistle that sounded very similar to the one in the video, but more drawn out. I just figured I would never get to the bottom of what was making the sounds until now. In March 2020, right before the pandemic, I traveled to Medellin, Colombia with my best friend to stay with her cousins who lived there. Most nights we were out late dancing or exploring the city, but there were two nights toward the end of the trip that we went to bed early, before 3 a.m. The room I was staying in was on the ground floor and had a window that opened up onto the street. The first night we stayed in, I woke up at 3 a.m. to a strange whistle. It was two notes, one higher and lower, with the second one drawn out. I figured it was just a person walking home late, which was unusual because it's a quiet and more residential area but the whistle repeated itself over and over at different intervals. Sometimes it was so close, it sounded right outside my window. Sometimes, so far, it sounded like it was in the street over. I looked out my window and didn't see any people or animals. The street was empty. In the morning, I figured I had just had a very lucid dream, or maybe the whistle was coming from a bat or bird flying nearby. The whistling made my hair stand on end, and I felt terrified when I heard it, but decided there must be an explanation. The same exact thing happened the second night. This is how I know I wasn't dreaming. I heard the same whistle around the same time, yet no one was in the street. I looked up local folklore and legends and told my friend about it, 
but there were no solid answers. I slept in my friend's room the third night because I was so scared. When I heard the podcast episode and you mentioned how the Whistler was a legend in Venezuela and Colombia, I couldn't believe it. So far, I am still alive, so if it is El Silbon, seems like it is not a dangerous one? Question mark, question mark, question mark. While I love legends and folklore, I am not a hardcore believer in the supernatural. However, my story, along with the two others you read, maybe it's not a coincidence. Love your show and hope you are well. Hannah. Thank you so much, Hannah, for sharing your experience with The Whistler. I thought that was an incredible update. And hey, if you have an experience with The Whistler, I guess write in and we'll make it a tradition to talk about The Whistler on this show. This second story was so moving to me. I immediately called my parents because I had to share it with them. This is from Tim Parker. This is absolutely true, and from a time in my life when the veil was certainly thin. In my 15th year, I was hit by a car, resulting in a near-death experience. Many unusual experiences coincided with my recovery, but this experience I find myself returning to in my mind, over and over. As soon as I could start walking again, I would go for walks as far as I could. I found myself in a neighborhood I didn't recognize. I was walking by a house. There was a woman and a couple of young children sitting on an open porch. She called out my name, so I walked over. I knew I knew her, but I couldn't place who she was, and I didn't want her to know that. My plan was to plunge right into a conversation before she noticed I didn't remember her. I said, how you doing? She looked down at my cast and said, better than you. Not sure what we talked about after that, just inane banter. But the whole time, I couldn't shake off the feeling that she had a secret. She had that playfully self-satisfied look people have when they're ready to unleash a juicy chunk of gossip or an accomplishment they want to brag about. I was vaguely intrigued, but mostly had to get home and get off my bad leg. I begged off and said goodbye to her and the kids. As I turned and walked away, she called. Tell everyone I said hi. Perfect, I thought. I don't even know her name. But I did. Far back in my recently banged up brain. I was about halfway home when I stopped in my tracks. It was Julie, my babysitter as a child. The only problem was that the last time I saw her was at her funeral when I was nine. She had been hit by a car, but didn't make it. It became clear to me that one part of my brain had busily suppressed her identity from me so I wouldn't freak out. That was her secret. That she was dropping by from the afterlife. I was able to pass the message to her sister, who could tell it was her because of the wise-ass remark about my cast. I was also able to tell her that Julie still had a job babysitting. This next submission is from Mackenzie. I learned from an extremely early age that the scariest monsters were human. And so, from then on, 
I kept myself shrouded in the dark. I guess part of me found comfort in it. The other part of me thought, if I surrounded myself with terrifying things, eventually nothing would be able to scare me anymore. The first time it visited me, I was lying in bed with my son, who was almost two at the time. The TV was left on a station that played music, and we cuddled together until sleep took us both. What happened next probably only lasted 10 seconds, if that, but to me, it felt like an eternity. I was awoken by the screeching sound of the TV turning to white static noise, which was overrode by another sound. It was similar to rushing wind and the feeling of a presence standing right next to me. My eyes were open, but I was facing away from the direction of the presence. I could see in the light of the TV, a shadow of a hand cast upon the wall above me and my son's head. Long claw-like fingers reaching for us. I tried desperately to turn and face my attacker, but no matter how badly I willed myself to move, my body would not obey. The feeling of something or someone pressing down on me was suffocating. And then, all at once, it was gone. I could move again. The TV went back to normal, and that was it. I went the very next day and brought crosses for every side of the room, holy water, a Bible, and a crucifix. Knowing what I know now, I laugh at this, but I was convinced that these items would protect me from the entity I was sure was put to get me and my son. The next time I was visited, I was home alone and six months pregnant with my second child. I can't remember what time of day it was, but I want to say it was daylight. I say this because I could fully see it this time. The creature, or whatever it was, creeping into my room. I was woken by the sense of a presence watching me. Again, all I could do was watch, my eyes wide with fear, as an old, gray man stalked into my room. If I could have, I'm sure I would have cried. I think I prayed then, although I don't really remember for sure. But I do remember closing my eyes as the thing crept closer, hoping it would spare my daughter's life. I was absolutely paralyzed with fear. But I'm sure even if I had tried to move, I wouldn't have been able to. When nothing happened, I opened my eyes again and the room was empty. The thing had vanished. I grabbed the item nearest my bed, which was a glass cup, and checked through the apartment. But there was no one. I was alone, once again. I never told anyone about these events, because I knew it sounded, well, crazy. So life went on. There was a time when there was actually someone else with me when it happened. Not that it mattered. They had no idea. The sound of loud, thudding footsteps startled me awake. A dark-looking figure strode towards me, reaching with those same ghastly fingers. I tried with all my might to kick at it. I screamed for my partner to wake up to help me, but the sound never escaped my throat. I could feel it pressing down on me, ready to destroy me, 
and I closed my eyes waiting for the strike. But it never came. It was gone again, everything back to normal. Occurrences like this happened a few more times until I finally got tired of it and talked to my doctor. Even if I was going crazy, I was willing to do anything to make it stop. I was losing sleep, fearing it would return. My doctor told me he believed what I was experiencing was known as sleep paralysis, which is actually a lot more common than people might think. I agreed, as it made the most sense. It explained all of my symptoms perfectly, and we began a treatment plan. I'm not really afraid anymore. Of course, I've said that before, but at least I know what I'm dealing with now. The thing that bothers me, though, is when I talk to my mom about it. She told me I had experienced these night terrors since I was about nine years old, and somehow I didn't remember them. My mind just blocked it out. Maybe a self-defense mechanism of a child. He still visits me sometimes, though. He whispers in my ear, little things only I can hear. My sleep paralysis demon. Like I said in the beginning of the episode, there are a few stories I received this time that were not of the supernatural nature, but just as terrifying. This next submission comes from someone who has asked to remain anonymous, and when you hear their story, you'll understand why. I used to work as a floating staff member in group homes for the mentally ill. Some of these places housed harmless individuals who were sweet but delusional. For example, an adorable postmenopausal woman who was convinced she was pregnant with Michael Jackson's baby. Some group homes catered to troubled youth who needed more structure and supervision than a foster home could provide. And some group homes were for murderers. As a staffer, you would read in their case files that they were found not guilty of their crime by reason of insanity. Most of them in this particular group home murdered their mothers. One brutal resident beat his mother with golf clubs across her legs, stabbed her multiple times, and then dragged her unconscious body down the stairs while she bled out. Reading these stories sent a chill through me. This was not some random tale from a true crime podcast. The murderer was the very same bearded gentleman sitting in the next room, quietly watching TV, and it was my job to supervise him. There was one guy who disturbed me the most. The rest of the men usually kept to themselves. I would be in the kitchen preparing a meal, and he would quietly creep up behind me, and then ask me a question causing me to jump. If every other man in the world had died and I was the only man left, would you have sex with me? My answer, I will never answer such an inappropriate question. He continued to follow me around, harassing me, but I felt I had no escape because I was paid to be there. This was my job. I was so relieved the day he moved out. Interestingly enough, we had a cannibal move in after him and he was way less disturbing to have around. Even though we all knew he fantasized about eating people, even going so far as to come up with a menu for the human body parts he craved, 
he was fun to talk to. We never discussed cannibalism, but he also never asked me if I would have sex with him. He was odd, of course, but always friendly and respectful towards me, and I even had a sort of affection for him. On the day that the would-you-have-sex-with-me guy moved out, it was my task to thoroughly clean his room. Cigarette butts galore. The entire room was filthy, and I scrubbed every inch of it. Suddenly, I realized as I was washing off the walls that the yellowed streaks sprayed near his bed were semen. Instantly, I regretted not having worn gloves. The idea of having touched this guy's ejaculation with my bare hands filled me with disgust. I couldn't wash my hands enough afterwards. The scariest thing that ever happened occurred over a year after this. I was working in a separate group home, and turns out that the would-you-have-sex-with-me guy had just moved into this new group home. As per usual, he stood too close to me, said weird things about sex, and just generally acted creepy. My coworker, there were always two of us on a day shift, told me that she had to run to the grocery store to pick up something for the house and she would be back soon. I should have told her, no way, you're not leaving, I'll get whatever it is for you after my shift, but I will not be left alone here. However, I was young and eager to please. I just crossed my fingers and hoped she would be back soon. After she left, Creepy Dude came into the office and asked if I could help him find something to eat. I said, okay, and stupidly walked into the pantry. While I was inspecting the shelves, the light in the room switched off and he swiftly closed the door behind us. I leaped for the door, yanked it open, and rushed from the pantry. How dare you? I demanded. He seemed amused, and in his monotone voice asked, Did I scare you? Trying to keep my voice from shaking, I vehemently denied being afraid as I stared bravely as I could into his dead, bloodshot blue eyes. That was the last time I worked in that particular group home. When that light switched off, I felt sure I was about to be raped or worse. I had several other memorable experiences working in these homes. One resident would frequently call me profane names while brandishing a kitchen knife in my direction when she didn't get her way. But no other shift left me so grateful to still be alive. This next submission is from Iggy V. I'm not quite sure how to start or finish this. Throughout my life, I've either been followed or had encounters with something I can't explain. Let me start with my earliest memory. I was either four or five years old. We'd just gotten home from getting groceries, my mother, older sister, and I. She would ask me to help take some inside giving me one of the brown paper bags to carry in. It would always be the lightest bag, bread or chips, but it would make me feel helpful regardless. We lived in a small town on a dead-end quiet street, somewhere close to the ocean. You could probably picture it in your head right now. The only thing that made this different than other streets was an old cemetery right at the bottom of the street. This cemetery, as far as I know, has nothing to do with this story. 
I had just gone to my room to play while mom put away the groceries. It was already dark outside when I heard her talking to our neighbors on the back step below my bedroom window. I remember I had gotten up, curious about what they were talking about, which was probably something boring and full of adult problems. When I climbed on my bed to look out of the window, I noticed my reflection. Only, it wasn't mine. It was a gaunt, pale, older person's face. I can't even tell you if it was male or female. The eyes were sickly and sunk into its face. I know what you're thinking. I'm a kid. It was probably just my reflection being distorted by the window. But it was the way it was looking at me. It wasn't facing the same way. That is... I wasn't matching up with this transparent face looking directly at me. I leapt up and ran downstairs and to my mom, who didn't believe me, of course, and tried to make me feel better, telling me funny stories or silly jokes until my mind shifted away from what I saw. A few years and a few houses later, we were living in a different town, a ten-minute drive or so from where I was living for the first part of the story but now I had a new little sister, five years or so younger than me. One night, after my sisters and I were put to bed, and my mother was down in the kitchen, I had just nearly fallen asleep when I saw her. Walking past my door towards the stairs was a little girl in a white dress. I assumed it was my little sister because she was usually hard to get to sleep, often getting up frequently to get mom's attention. I suppose it was a bit of a follow the leader because I got up as well. I descended down the stairs. The whole house was silent aside from the creaking of the stairs. As I entered the kitchen, I seen my mom sitting at the table where I figured she would be. But I didn't see my little sister. I told my mom I'd seen her walk to the stairs and she wasn't in her pajamas. And my mom, probably hoping for a bit of a break after a long day, stood up and sighed but smiled, taking my hand to bring me back to bed, looking for my sister along the way. When we made it to the door to my room, my mom let go of my hand to check in my sister's room. She came out and whispered to me that my sister was deep asleep. I peered into her bedroom to see for myself, and sure enough, she was in bed, wearing the PJs mom had put on her before bed. No dress in sight. Not long later, I would learn that my mother, two uncles, and aunt had also seen this little girl in a white dress. They believe it to be the spirit of their mother. But I had another idea recently. Another couple of years later, my father, who I rarely seen, was taking care of a farmhouse for a friend. And I know what you're thinking. Of course there would be a farm, or a lighthouse, or some other obvious location, but hear me out, nothing paranormal happened at this location, in fact, I had some really fun memories here with my older sister, except one. My dad had a friend over one night. Well, I assumed it was a friend, I didn't know my dad well enough to know anyone that visited him. They brought a little girl with them. My father asked me to show her around while they talked, and I was more than happy because there was so much to show. The skull of a cow on the edge of the old field out back. The big barn with all the hay to hide and play in. The beach close to the house where you could play in the sand. This farm had everything. There was a shed by the house that I didn't go in yet. 
so I took her there as well. It took me a little effort to get the latch open, but nothing I couldn't handle. When we got inside, there wasn't much to see aside from some old tools, and that's when I saw it. Above the window on a rack. A shotgun. My dad had me hunting a few times and even let me shoot. I climbed up and took the gun down. The girl, who was about my age, was just as amazed as I was. I cracked open the barrel and it was empty, so we took it out to play like we were hunting. Everything was going fine until I actually squeezed the trigger. Up until then, we just pretended we were shooting it. An explosion went off from inside the chamber, and moments later, I could hear her screams. My father and his friend came running from the house to see what had happened. I don't recall much of what happened after that aside from my father saying there was no shell in the gun and that it must have been some gunpowder in the chamber. I was sent to my room, and the girl and her dad left to go home. The only thing I can clearly remember about her was her dress. Her white dress. Like the one I'd seen walk past my door. Get ready for this next one. It comes with audio files that were recorded during the events of the next story. This one is bone chilling. Disclaimer, for legal reasons, many details have either been omitted or changed as to not damage the reputations of any company or individuals in the following accounts. Note from author, I do not wish to come across as being an asshole, but for those who know me in real life and in turn know these stories I'm about to share, I'd appreciate it if you could keep these details to yourself for the safety and job security of others. I have been allowed to write and share these as long as I leave out certain details so they can't be traced back to the sources. Introduction So I have a friend who works in a care home. We'll call her Miss H for distinction's sake, who specializes in end-of-life care for people who suffer from dementia and other ailments. The care home is separated into several wards, with one for low care, residents who are sound of mind and able to move on their own but need supervision, one ward specifically for dementia patients, and one ward designated as an intensive care unit. As expected from such a care home, it has been the site for many deaths throughout the years as it is literally a place where people come to die comfortably and peacefully while not being able to be cared for by their own family. My friend who works here, Miss H, is a night shift care worker who tends to the residents during the long nights, helping them with whatever they need from urgent medical attention to something as simple as a friendly face to talk to. My friend has many things to say about working nights in a care home, but the following is just a few of the stories she has shared over the years. Item number one, the fire door. Most modern buildings, or at least buildings that have a considerable amount of people within them at any given time, are often fitted with state-of-the-art fire safety and prevention equipment, most commonly is that of the automatic fire isolation doors. For those who don't know what they are, allow me to explain. 
These doors are always in double sets and are held open magnetically. When the smoke detectors are set off or the fire alarm is pulled, the magnets on these doors are released to prevent any fire spreading too much. It has been noted by the staff that in one particular corridor of the ICU, there is a set of these doors that will close seemingly of their own accord two to three times a month. These doors have been tested by professionals on many occasions and even replaced, but to no avail. This doesn't seem like much at first, until new staff noticed a pattern. From the point those particular set of doors close on their own, a resident in that corridor will pass on within 24 hours of that door closing. According to my friend, staff have grown to take it as a sign to be ready for the inevitable. After all, there's only so much you can do for someone who is on death's door in a place where they've come to die. Item number two, the pianos. The care home has several pianos on the premises, with one in each ward and another in the reception area at the front door. It may sound cliche, but these pianos have been known to play themselves in a sense. The pianos were introduced to help the more musically inclined residents. Miss H informed me that many times when she was starting her shifts, there'd often be a resident playing one of the pianos to their heart's content. The first instance Miss H heard one of the pianos play itself was a particularly emotional night. There had been this resident living in the home, we'll call her Mrs. P. Now, in her youth, Mrs. P dreamed of growing up to be a concert pianist, but ended up becoming a music teacher in a local school. Mrs. P came to the home after an accident left her unable to walk and had nobody at home to care for her. Staff said she'd often spend her days playing piano in the lounge by herself. The night she passed away, she had held Miss H's hand and told her she was not afraid of death as she knew her husband was waiting for her. Miss H recalled that as she left Mrs. P's room, the resident was staring and smiling at the corner of the room. Roughly 30 minutes later, as Miss H was tidying up in the lounge, the piano had suddenly sounded out several notes in succession before falling silent. Miss H had immediately went to Mrs. P's room to check on her, but found that she had already moved on. Miss H recalled several other times the pianos had been heard during her nights at the care home. There had even been a night where Miss H and a fellow colleague had heard a few chords coming from the lounge, but on that particular night, all the home's pianos were off-site for maintenance. And this is Shelby again. Here is a recording I was sent of the piano playing by itself. You have to listen very closely. I'm going to try to make it a little louder and I'll play you the original and then I think I'm going to try to clean this up and I'll play it again after that. And here is the cleaned up version so you can hear the piano a little better. Isn't that 
terrifying. Oh, I, it's, I, you know, it's not even terrifying. I think it's beautiful. I have to admit it's, it's, I'd be scared, but I think it's so beautiful. Okay. On to the rest of the story for Miss H. Item number three, the cursed room. In the ICU, there's a room that the staff never use to hold residents unless they absolutely have no other space on the unit. Room 36 is at the very end of the corridor that holds the aforementioned fire doors. There's several reasons as to why this room is never used. Residents in this room always complain it's too cold, which old people do anyway but staff have noted that despite the heating being up full in the room, it never registers above 12 degrees Celsius. Staff have also noted that despite their best cleaning efforts, the room constantly smells of rotting flesh. And to boot, any time a resident passes away in that room, the fire alarm in that ward is set off, which is a pretty good reason to keep it vacant. Residents whom are still of sound mind have often spoke of an uneasy feeling when inside this room, demanding to be moved as soon as another room is freed up, while residents who suffered from cognitive difficulties would often speak to people who weren't there, often dead spouses. This would be seen as pretty normal if it weren't for this behavior completely ceasing once moved to another room. One resident, we'll call Mr. In, who had suffered multiple seizures and had cognitive regression, had been moved into room 36 after a maintenance issue arose in his own room. While staying in room 36, he said his grandfather was in there constantly, asking Mr. In to help him. When Mr. In was returned to his own room upon conclusion of the maintenance, all mentions of his deceased grandfather stopped. One of Miss H's colleagues, whom we'll refer to as Mr. S, often speaks of how he personally thinks that the room has a thinner veil between our world and the world of the afterlife. He is, after all, a paranatural empath, or so he says. I don't judge people for believing in the supernatural. I am writing this, after all. This had all started when a resident had transferred to this home from another. She had suffered from neglect in her previous home, which had resulted in severe sepsis of the skin. She had made it known during her entire stay that she hated being in the care home and hated everyone who lived or worked there. This is Shelby interrupting with another audio file, as the writer said that when someone passes away in room 36, the ICU fire alarms and doors tend to slam. Here is a recording um this is i'll read verbatim more interestingly i have a recording of the icu fire alarm and doors slamming the night a resident died in room 36. so here it goes now back to the rest of the story item number four let them in. This is the most recent one, so as many know, the SARS COVID-19 pandemic hit the United Kingdom in March 2020. This was a very difficult time for many people, 
but the people who were hit the hardest was the care workers and residents in care homes across the country. Because of the high number of care home residents living with pre-existing health conditions, few of them in this care home in particular survived. Many died suddenly from infections worsened by trying to fight off this new microscopic invader. Miss H's care home was locked down to new residents for three months until there was no cases of SARS-CoV-19 left in the home. In the weeks since they reopened to new residents, there had been new developments inside the home on the spoopy front, as Miss H called it. Most notably was a new sound in the corridors. Another colleague of Miss H, who we shall refer to from here on as Miss D, was actually the first to witness this one in a sense. Miss D had been doing her rounds when she had happened across a noise, a rapping noise, like someone knocking on something. She had dismissed it the first time, with dementia ward above her, it could have been a wandering resident having an episode. It was when she was doing her next set of rounds that she felt something was wrong. This time, when she was walking down the corridor, she heard the knocking again, but this time it sounded like it was on a glass pane. She checked every resident's room thoroughly to make sure everyone was in bed and accounted for. It was not uncommon to find a resident hiding in another resident's room at night. Everyone had been accounted for, so she went back to her paperwork until the next set of rounds. The knocking sounded again whilst she was walking down the corridor, but this time she had taken a guess at the direction of the knocking and went straight to it. When she opened the door to the resident's room, he was fast asleep and alone in the room. For a moment, Miss D thought it might have been a prank played on her by her colleagues that night. The night staff always worked in at least two per ward, but she knew her colleague was down the other end of the unit doing her own rounds down there. Instead of going back to the office, Miss D decided to wait outside the resident's room, leaning against the wall out of sight from the square window and the door. Her colleague eventually came to find her, and when she explained what had been happening, her colleague waited on the other side of the door. They stood there quietly, guarding the door for a while until it was time to do the rounds again. Then, just as they were away to start checking the other residents, there was a very loud knock on the glass from the other side. The resident was still fast asleep, and both care workers confirmed that there was nobody hiding in the room. The knocking still happens every so often, but Miss D and her colleague from that night now refuse to work on that ward. Item number five, the dark unit. On the ground floor is where the low mobility unit is situated. It is considered to be the creepiest unit by residents, staff, and visitors alike. All the units are fitted with automatic dimmer lights in the hallways that activate after 11 p.m. However, despite the low mobility unit having these lights fitted, they refuse to work. Electricians have actually given up trying to get them to work. This has left the corridors of the unit only lit by the bright fire exit lights. More disturbingly, however, is the apparition that the staff have reported in the main lounge of the unit. They often speak of how they've walked past the lounge in the middle of the night and spotted the silhouette of a person standing in the corner of the room, looking out the floor-to-ceiling windows. 
which seems to dissipate before their eyes upon entering the room. Staff from the other units have also reported seeing the shadow person. The shape of the building allows the staff to see across the courtyard into the lounge window from any of the residents' room in the building. On several occasions, staff have said that when they have went to close the curtains or adjust the windows in a resident's room, they would spot the figure outlined in the window by the courtyard light. More alarmingly, two members of staff reported that this figure seemed to be watching them if they were at the window for room 36 in the ICU. To add to all this, staff working in this unit have also spoken of howling coming from one of the rooms on several occasions. Which room it originates from remains a mystery, as when a care worker goes to investigate, it almost immediately stops. And among all these other disturbances in the low mobility unit, there have also been reports of lounge and dining room furniture moving of its own accord. Sometimes it's an orthopedic armchair moving an inch or two towards the window. Other times it's a dining chair being knocked onto its back. Most notable of the furniture disturbances was the night where Miss H was covering that unit and heard a clatter from the dining room. She had known about the furniture moving on its own before this night, but she was not ready for what she saw. As she had suspected, a dining chair was in fact lying on its back, only this time it was lying on top of a table as if it had been placed there. The most recent addition to the creepy happenings of the low mobility unit started up during the home's lockdown due to the presence of SARS COVID-19. The unit used to be home to a resident we'll call Mr. Z. Mr. Z was what the care industry referred to as a wanderer meaning he'd wake up in the middle of the night and begin wandering around for no apparent reason. He had been assigned to the low mobility unit due to overcrowding in the dementia ward, meaning he was the only resident in the unit who could get around of his own volition. This had led to problems involving the unit's kitchen staff as they would come into work first thing in the morning to find missing cutlery and broken plates in the bin. It had come to light that whenever Mr. Z had begun to wander during the night, he had been going into the kitchen for a midnight snack, but never actually made anything successfully due to his cognitive regression from the dementia, which is where the broken plates come from. As for the missing cutlery, that's what gave away that he had been the one in the kitchen during the night, as the staff were on their breaks. Management then told them that there had to be at least one member of staff in the unit at any given time to prevent this. Further measurements were put in place to keep Mr. Z out of the kitchen, which was mainly the installation of a heavy door that Mr. Z struggled to push open. Unfortunately, Mr. Z passed away from SARS-CoV-19 during the home's lockdown, but according to staff, he can still be heard opening and slamming the kitchen door, which is usually followed by cutlery being launched all around the kitchen. The only staff that agree to work in this unit during the night are the ones who don't believe in the supernatural in any form, and I don't blame them. This submission is from longtime supporter of the show, Brittany Bond. Brittany sent in a couple of her own stories. This first one she called, The Book Was a Horror Portal. I've always been a horror fan since I was little. 
My grandmother used to watch all the old classics when we stayed with her, and it got me absolutely hooked. I remember the first scary movie I ever watched was The Puppet Master, and I'm still scared of puppets to this day, no joke. Anyway, when I was about 10 years old, my best friend and I were home alone while our parents were at a party together. I know it might seem weird to leave your two 10-year-olds alone at home, but those were different times. We babysat ourselves from time to time, and I'm pretty sure one of my older siblings was supposed to be there with us, but they weren't. Sorry, Mom. We decided we were going to spend the evening eating snacks and reading spooky stories from this collection of scary tales my mom had. For the life of me, I can't remember the name of the book, but it was one big black book that had this horrifying stuff in it with even scarier illustrations. My friend and I bunkered down for a night full of spooks with our popcorn, candy, sodas, and candlelight to read by. It helped that this particular night was stormy and super windy. The mood had been perfect. So we sat in my living room, on the couch, side by side, and took turns reading story after story. We would occasionally try to scare each other, and then we'd laugh and poke fun at each other after. It was a great night for a future aspiring horror fanatic. Until it wasn't. About halfway through our horror reading party, the storm had settled. It was very quiet, aside from the sounds we made as we spoke and shouted random boos and chuckled. My friend was in the middle of reading aloud one particularly gruesome story, when all of a sudden, we heard these booming loud noises that sounded like someone was running on the roof of my house. We both froze and shared a mortified stare. It was a few minutes before either of us spoke. What was that? My friend asked shakily. I just shrugged. I couldn't even speak. Should we go and check it out? She asked me again. She was the braver of the two of us. I gulped and shook my head no, but she stood to investigate anyway. And being the coward that I was, I followed her because I would rather have been with her facing the terror than anxiously waiting for it to come get me on my own. We moved slowly and carefully to the front door, where my friend peeked her head out the window to see if she could peep anyone outside. After a few seconds of intense searching in the dark, another loud boom on the door we were standing in front of knocked us both off our feet. At this point, we were screaming bloody murder. We ran to my bedroom and tried to hide from whatever was to be our sure doom. I stuffed myself into my closet while my friend hid under the bed. We sat there for what felt like hours, but was probably only all of five minutes. The loud bangs wouldn't stop. We could hear them in my room now, like the monster was somehow able to follow us from outside. My bedroom windows rattled, and the ceiling sounded like something was going to fall through it. I was in absolute tears. I thought, this is it. I'm going to die here. Then, all of a sudden, it was quiet again. After sitting in the silence for a few minutes, my friend and I finally reappeared from our hiding places. We just hugged each other for a few minutes and then shared nervous laughter. For the rest of the night, we watched Disney movies with all the lights on and we never looked out the windows again. We never brought up this night to anyone after it happened and we never really talked about it again. It scarred us for life. I think my friend was kind of turned off of scary things after that, but I became a horror junkie. 
And I realize we were 10 and purposely spooking ourselves. So who knows if it was our minds playing tricks on us, someone playing a prank, part of the storm, or if there really was someone trying to get us. All I know is that the few times I have brought that night up in our adult lives, my friend still remembers it exactly the way I do, and she's still just as creeped out about it as well. Here is Brittany's second submission. When I was 14 years old, I had just recently made a new friend who always tried to get me to do things I wouldn't normally do. You know how those kids are the new, cool, rebellious type who don't care about anything and just look for trouble. This was exciting for me, because my long-standing group of friends, including myself, had all been kind of nerdy and innocent. So, of course, I was ready for this phase. My parents let me have a sleepover with all my friends one weekend, when they were having people over as well. The adults stayed in the living room watching a concert or game or something like that on TV, and we stayed in my room. And attempted to summon a demon. That's right, new cool rebellious friend brought a Ouija board to my house for a night of spooky fun. My friends and I were all rightly hesitant, but it was something new and exciting, so we went for it. Rebel friend, let's call her Sandy, put the board onto my end table beside my bed and let us all gawk at it for a few minutes. Then she dug into her backpack and brought out some more tools for a successful incantation, as she said. She handed each of us a necklace that had a pentagram on it and told us to put them on. She drew blood all over our faces and arms with red lipstick and then grabbed a few tea candles and a lighter and lined the candles in a circle on my bedroom floor, where she also sprinkled some kind of black dust-like soot. I had no idea what she was doing. I don't think any of us did, including her, but we went with it. She had each of us put our hands on the little glass slider for the Ouija board and told us not to push it because she would know, and began asking weird questions. Questions that seemed like she was the demon. She asked, If there's a demon here, make yourself present. And suddenly, a book fell off my TV stand. We all jumped and gasped. Sandy giggled and said, Yes, you're here! Then she asked the board, Do you think you could possess any of us tonight? And the board answered, Yes. At this point, we were a mixture of creeped out and annoyed. One of my friends said she was done and tried to leave. Sandy yelled, You can't break this connection! And grabbed onto her hand very tightly. She stayed put. Sandy asked another question. If you had to choose one of us to take, who would it be? And the board responded with our friend who was the biggest scaredy cat of us all. Let's call her Anna. We all froze and silently stared at Anna as she shook with fear. After a few minutes of Sandy shining a devilish grin our way, I spoke up. Okay, this has been fun, but maybe it's time to stop now. I started to clean everything up, when Sandy grabbed Anna's arm all of a sudden and started chanting what sounded like Latin in a spitfire fashion that terrified us. How did she know this language? What was she doing? Suddenly, she stopped and gasped loudly. Then, 
fell to the floor. Anna asked quietly, Is she okay? Are we done? But before she could even finish her thought, Anna started convulsing on the floor. Every single one of us panicked. We grabbed Anna and held her head up as we tried calling out to her. We didn't know what to do. Sandy was still passed out on the floor, or pretending to be anyways, and we were too scared we'd get in trouble to go get my parents. I was terrified. Are both of my friends about to die on my floor? Is there really a demon? This all seemed so fake to me, but suddenly, I couldn't feel my face. As the chaos continued, the windows in my bedroom began to shake as if the glass was about to break, and the furniture all rattled on the ground like if a train had been going by outside. My friends were all nervously whispering to each other, trying to keep quiet in the midst of the panic, and I didn't know what to do with myself, so I just put my head in between my knees and cried. Then my saving grace. My mother opened our door up. What's going on in here? My mom shouted as she barged in on the scene. The moment she opened the door, Sandy snapped out of it and slowly sat up off the floor. All of the windows and furniture stopped shaking, and I shot my head up at her immediately. It was as if whatever was in the room freaked out and vanished when my mom opened the door. All was well, except Anna who continued convulsing in my other friend's arms. Oh my god! My mom shouted as she took Anna away from us and had my dad call an ambulance for her. What us kids hadn't known was that Anna suffered from seizures, and something we did that night triggered a very bad one. She was okay in the end, but I felt guilty about that for the rest of my life. And I know the things we did weren't real. They couldn't have been. There's no way some costume jewelry, a board game, some dollar store candles, and fireplace ash could have brought a spirit into my room. Unless, of course, it was just the spirit board itself. What's even worse is that, as an adult, I always remember that we never said goodbye to the Ouija board. What if whatever was in my room back then has been floating around in my life ever since? Silently waiting to strike. Our next submission is from Taryn B. My submission is a few true stories. They aren't the most flashy, but they were terrifying at the time. The first one was when I was six or seven, I'm not entirely sure, but I remember the experience vividly. I had some pretty bad insomnia at the time, but so is the case with most kids at that age. Anyways, one night I was laying in bed with my mom, we usually slept together because I was deeply afraid of the dark, and I was observing my room out of boredom, waiting to be taken to the void where dreams are made. When I see a shape, it seemed like it was from light shining from the blinds, but it had a largeness to it. It wasn't humanoid, it didn't move or have any shape to it but I still felt like there was something there. I had been pondering that for a while, and then, and I shit you not, I remember this like it was yesterday, I heard a little girl giggle like it was right next to my ear. I was so scared, I covered my head with the blanket, all of my muscles were clenched in terror, and I tried to shove any thoughts I had down because I had the innate feeling that it could hear what I was thinking. 
Sometime later, my curiosity overcame my fright, and I peeked out. The light was gone. There was no shape, no nothing. Just normal streaks of moonlight shining through the window. My second story isn't really that scary to an outside listener. Hell, I don't know if it even happened. About two years ago, I was falling asleep in that meditative state where your eyelids feel glued to your face, and I hear a voice say, like loading a shotgun. It sounded dry and mechanical, like when you talk by breathing in. It sounded like it was mere inches from my face. This jolted me awake and I was too afraid to open my eyes and for a few minutes I was convinced I was about to die. Eventually I fell asleep, nothing came of it, and my family chalked it off to the cats. However, I know it was not a cat that I owned, and it was in too close proximity with me to be anyone else in another room. All the details in these are true, although I'm sure that's obvious because they are pretty plain. The second story is very likely just me halfway in dream state. However, the first one was terrifying. I got chills writing about it. Thank you so much for making my life just a little bit more horrifying, and I hope you found my story interesting. This next submission is from Esmeralda James, and this story comes from Spain. When I was a child, my mother used to put me to sleep with ghost stories. Some were legends, and some were stories that happened to her or friends of hers. This story I'm going to tell you happened to someone she knew. Let's start by saying my family is from Spain, and this happened while my mother was spending the summer of 1952 with family in Madrid. I guess I should start with the story of the whipping woman. Before you say, I already know the story, let me assure you that you don't know this version. La Llorona, or the whipping woman, has many versions in many countries. The story I was told as a child is that she was a beautiful woman who loved the attention of men, even though she was married and had two kids. She loved her kids with everything in her heart. She just didn't love her husband. One day, her and her lover were in the plaza, kissing in the middle of the night. From one of the houses around the plaza, a woman who was very nosy saw them. The next day, she went to the husband and told him who she saw last night. Her husband told La Llorona, whose name was lost with time, husband of his wife's betrayal. The husband came home, took the kids, which were her true love, and imprisoned her. He left her to die. The only thing the guards heard from her was her cries, Where are my babies? Give me my babies. Since her death, people of the town heard her crying for her kids, and if she caught you nosying around on other people's business, she will take your soul. Now that we know the story of the whipping woman, let's get into the story of the woman my mother knew. This young woman, Martha, I believe her name was, loved to spend her nights looking through the blinds and seeing who was with who, trying to get into people's lives just to spread rumors around town. This particular night, she saw two lovers, and she thought she knew the woman, but the man she was with was not her boyfriend. The next day, she told everyone who would listen about the two lovers she saw. The woman she thought she saw came to her house to scream at her, because actually it was not her who she saw. She was at her grandmother's house that night. 
Before she left, she cursed her and told her, I pray for La Llorona to take your soul. Martha laughed at this. That night, while she was doing what she did best, being nosy, she heard a woman crying. She tried to see who it was, but she couldn't make out where the sound was coming from. It was like it was inside her house. The next morning, she told her mother. With wide eyes, her mother told her that was La Llorona, and now that you've heard her cries, she is going to come for your soul. Martha was freaking out. Martha went to the witch of the town for help. The witch lady told her to get a newborn and make the baby cry as soon as she heard the cries of La Llorona. That night, she had the baby in her arms, waiting for La Llorona, and as soon as the clock hit midnight, she heard the cries. She then pinched the baby to make him cry. At the moment the baby started to cry, her windows blew out, and the woman called La Llorona was inside. Her face was a skeleton, and with one skeleton finger, she pointed to Martha and said, That baby saved your soul. Next time, you will not be that lucky. Let's just say, Martha's nosy pastime was over with. So remember, stop worrying about what other people are doing, because La Llorona might come for your soul. This next submission is from Hart Weber, and he titled it, Why I Hate the Supernatural. I've only told this story to my best friend. When I was 17, I lived with my parents and brother. One morning, while I was still somewhere between the land of waking and asleep, I felt something or someone touching the bottom of my scrotum, almost like they were trying to tickle them. I tried to wake completely to see who or what was molesting my genitals, but I quickly realized I couldn't move at all. Not even my eyes would open, despite my best efforts to order them open. It almost felt like my own body was being held down, but being held down by its own weight. I was terrified and struggled as hard as I could, but I still couldn't open my eyes or move my limbs more than a millimeter or so. After what felt like an eternity, but in reality was about a minute or so, I finally rested enough control of my body to finally open my eyes and move my limbs. However, when I looked toward the foot of the bed, it was daylight by this point because it was the weekend, I saw nothing there. After a short while, my heart rate and respiration returned to normal. I had no idea what had happened, but I was absolutely freaked out. I wanted to believe that it had just been a dream, but what dream leaves you paralyzed while your conscious mind races in panic? My 17-year-old brain eventually brushed it off as just a bad dream. Besides, who would believe me? So I kept it quiet for my friends and family. I wish things had ended then and there, but it wasn't the last time. About seven years later, I was in college and had moved out of my parents' house. I had found a room to rent in the upper floor of a townhouse near where I was attending school and had lived there for about a year when it happened again. Early one morning, while it was still dark, my mind came awake while my body refused to move. This time my eyes did respond enough to halfway open. When they did, I wish they hadn't. Because when they finally cleared, I saw a black, malevolent, red-eyed face 
in the shadows of the corner where the wall met the ceiling. It was about five meters away, but I was absolutely terrified. It wasn't a normal face either. It was triangular and ethereal, almost like it was a visage formed from solidified smoke. The edges were hazy, as if the smoke which had formed the face had dissolved back into a gas at the edges. I say it was malevolent, because the face seemed to radiate hate. Its eyes felt like the eyes of a predator appraising its prey. I struggled to move, to turn on my bedside lamp, to do anything but once again, my limbs felt like they were made of lead and refused to budge. All I could do was snap my eyes shut as hard as I could and desperately pray the words of Psalm 23. I kept repeating the words of the psalm, starting with, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And after repeating the psalm two or three times, I dared to open my eyes. The dark face had gone, and after a few minutes, I finally had enough control of my limbs to turn on my bedside lamp. There was nothing there, but there was no way I was going back to sleep. The thought of whatever I had seen returning to finish whatever foul job it had started banished all thoughts of closing my eyes again. I grabbed a book I kept by my bedside and began to read until the sun rose. After the second incident, I began to research the phenomenon. From what I could gather, it was called sleep paralysis, or SP for short. It was a phenomenon that had been recorded for centuries, but it went by various names. Christianity called it the incubi, or succubi. Night demons, which sat on the chests of sleeping victims and tempted them with various sexual perversions. I didn't know if what I had seen was a demon or not. All I knew was that I never wanted to see anything like that ever again. The last SP incident I had occurred about four years after the second. I had graduated college, got a real job, and was on vacation with my father. We were bunked on a tour vessel in Halong Bay, about a day and a half long journey from Hanoi. I awoke in our shared cabin only to find that once again, my eyes and limbs did not respond to my conscious commands. Once again, the old terror returned. I panicked, thinking that what I had seen before had returned and was in the cabin with us. Was it going to attack my dad as revenge for sending it away the last time? After a few minutes of unintelligible groaning and physical struggling, I regained use of my body and snapped open my eyes, only to find that no one was there. My dad in his bunk across the room snored away contently. I wondered if it had happened again because I was in a foreign country. Does Vietnam have indigenous evil spirits of its own? After the last incident, I eventually left the Christian church and any belief I had in the supernatural. The specific reasons why are a story for another time, and I don't want to turn this story into one of religious controversy. However you feel about apostates, people who abandon belief, I don't really care. Because my mental health significantly improved after I stopped applying supernatural explanations to things I couldn't explain. 
I tried to convince myself that what I had experienced was nothing more than the hallucinations of a half-awake mind and a still-asleep body. That what I had experienced was nothing more than my mind panicking because it lacked control of its own body. But there lingers still a splinter of doubt in the back of my mind. What if what I experienced didn't have a rational, naturalistic explanation? What if what I experienced was something real and not imaginary? Whatever it was, all I know is that I never want to experience it again. And if I were still religious, I would pray you never experience it either. This next submission was sent under the name Abandoned in the Ohio Countryside by Emilisa Vipersnout. This story has been haunting me for years and I have wanted to write it down for a long time. But to be honest, it still scares me to death. I am finally recording it for the Scare You to Sleep podcast's true horror episode. I hope I do the memory justice by accurately depicting the terror I experienced. I went through this with two friends, and I will be changing their names to protect their privacy. This happened years ago, when I was in high school, but I remember it like it was yesterday. I was spending the night at my friend Catherine's parents' house with our other friend, Ashton. I had been there a few times before. They lived out in the sticks, where houses were few and far between. She lived on a beautiful patch of land with a waterfall in the woods near her house. We always loved to hike around and explore the area. That night, after Kat's parents went to bed, We three restless teenagers decided to go on a little adventure to the abandoned house up the road. Kat and Ashton had both been there before. It had been abandoned for years. The first few times Kat went, there was still a bunch of stuff in the house, but over the years it got picked through. I was excited to go creeping about in a spooky house in the woods because I had no real sense of mortality. Plus, if my friends had been there before... It was no real threat, right? We had to crawl into this house through a little downstairs bathroom window because the front door was padlocked. Inside the house was massive and in relatively decent shape for having been abandoned for years. Kat and Ashton gave me the tour of the main floor. To the left of the bathroom we entered was a very unsettling scene. The room was an obvious nursery There were Care Bears painted on the walls, and through a broken window, half-dead vines crept into the house. We went back out into the main area of the house and walked past the kitchen, as it had a dilapidated floor, and no one was trying to fall through into the basement below. Wait until you see the upstairs. It's way cooler. Kat led the way up some old wooden steps. The top stair let out a groan something awful as we each stepped up into the second floor. There was a big, gorgeous ballroom area that spanned the whole living area and kitchen below. The house was plantation-style with balconies on the front and back. We avoided going out onto them as we didn't want to alert the dogs on a nearby property. They weren't too close, but Kat assured me they watched out for the property. 
Across the ballroom from the stairs was a narrow hallway. It stretched the rest of the house with rooms and bathrooms on both sides. I don't really remember how many rooms there were. The master was all the way at the back, and we chose to hang out in the room before it so that our flashlights didn't shine through the window and alert the neighbors. It's very dark in the woods, and you can see a light for quite a way. Being the teenagers we were, we brought weed, snacks, and candles. We sat side by side in the back corner of the room and decided to smoke the dregs of what we had. Now, this is a time before cell phones, and I don't care if I'm dating myself. This is just to explain that we were well and truly alone, and we're certainly not monitoring the time, so my recollection includes some guessing as to how long had passed. I would say about half an hour had gone by, and Kat said she thought she heard something downstairs. I didn't hear what she was talking about, but we all got quiet and observant to try to figure it out. More time passed, though not a lot, and without any other sounds, we went back to our hang. I pulled out some snacks, and Kat said she had to pee. Obviously, being a long-abandoned house, there is no running water. I am not proud of the advice I gave, but I told her just to pop a squat in the closet of the room we were in. Ashton and I promised not to look. She gets up and goes into the closet and starts to squat, when suddenly, the loud and unmistakable creak of the top stair shot through the house. My heart dropped. I looked over to Kat, horrified, and she looked back, frozen in terror. I looked to Ashton to see if she heard it too, and she sat there with her jaw dropped and eyes wide, telling me all I needed to know. The sound was real. Kat scrambled to pull her pants back up and come over to where Ashton and I were sitting. We held hands as we listened to a very distinct set of footsteps milling about in the ballroom area. We tried to silently work up a plan of what to do. I well and truly thought this was one of two scenarios and neither were paranormal. I thought this is either a crazy that lives in the woods, it happens a lot, or it was someone from the nearby property come to investigate some sign that we were there. We live in a highly amosexual state, and I was terrified that I would be staring down the barrel of some hill folks shotgun that night. None of us knew what to do, so we sat in silence for about an hour while this person walked around the same area over and over. What were they doing? I still remember how I could hear the sounds of pant legs brushing past one another and footfalls on the hardwood floor. The sound stayed out in the ballroom area the whole time, so I assumed it probably wasn't someone coming to look for intruders. For the longest hour of my life, I sat there shaking uncontrollably as the adrenaline coursed through my veins. There was a window in the room, and the house was built partially into a hill, making the drop no more than six feet to the ground. We thought about bailing that way, but when Kat tried to open it, it was stuck, and very quickly eliminated as an option for escape. We couldn't try to creep into another room to try a different window without alerting this person that we were there. So, back to square one. Silently, we mouthed words to one another. Ashton suggested we announce ourselves, and we agreed that that was our only real option. If this person was armed at all, we could not risk just running out and getting shot at. 
Now the decision had to be made. Who was going to speak up? None of us wanted to do it. I was still quaking, and Kat asked me if I was okay. I just quietly asked, Are you okay if I just do it? Ashton and Kat gave their blessings. I couldn't think about it anymore. I spoke up and choked on the words, Hey, we're really sorry. We needed a place to come and talk in private. We didn't know anyone was here. We'll go. The footsteps come charging down the hallway. My heart stopped. I was trying to prepare myself to have to fight someone, so at the very least my friends could escape. I was easily the toughest of the three and have always been protective. The steps stopped right in front of the open door to the room we were in. Nothing was there. Nothing visible, at least. At this point, the silence was already broken, so we began trying to figure out what was going on. Kat shone her flashlight out the door and tried to angle it to go around the corner towards the ballroom. Where are they? Shine it over there! We started gathering our stuff, blew out our candle, grabbed the paraphernalia that would later be tossed into the woods, and got up to go. None of us were comfortable going out the door into the hallway, where the source of these footsteps was last heard. The three of us stood there, holding on to one another, asking, Are they still there? I don't see anything. Kat steps up and says, Let's just hang on to each other and go. When she said that, the footsteps entered the room next to us, and we took our opportunity. On the way out of the room, Kat, holding the flashlight in one hand and my hand in the other, and me, holding Ashton's hand while she had our bag of stuff, we decided that we needed to check the next room. I wish I could just say we got the hell out of there and that was it, but the nightmare wasn't quite over. Kat pointed the flashlight into the room that had a rocking chair, rocking back and forth on its own in an otherwise empty room. We kept moving, completely unsettled by that sight and the lack of a corporeal form to assign to the footsteps. We quickly shuffled out of the hall and across the ballroom and to the top of the stairs. At this point, Kat and I had no desire to look back, but Ashton, being at the back of the line, took the opportunity. Oh my god, he's right there! Ashton screamed, and I tugged her along behind me down the stairs. We ran to the bathroom we came in and tried to shove the door shut behind us, but it wouldn't latch. Ashton had big shit-kicker boots on and used those to hold the door as Kat climbed out the window, followed by me. We looked back and caught Ash as she supermaned out the window and into our arms. The three of us quickly but quietly walked about a half a mile down the drive and past the other property and then ran back to Kat's house once we made it to the road. Ashton said she saw a big, dark, shadowy figure standing right in the entrance of the hallway when she looked back. She never saw any details like a face, just a shadow. Kat then admitted that when she first went to this abandoned house, she felt like she was followed by a shadow person for a while after. She would wake up paralyzed and see it standing at the foot of her bed. When we got back to Kat's, we had to sneak in there too, so we didn't set off her dogs and wake up her parents. 
Once we were inside, we all piled on the couch together, looked at one another, and just started laughing hysterically. If I was alone, I would have checked myself into a mental hospital, but having Ashton and Catherine there experience the same things as me, I knew I wasn't losing it. Of course, we were not going to sleep that night, so we ended up watching several classic Adam Sandler movies until the sun came up. I stayed friends with them for a while after this happened, and any time we talked about it, we all got the creeps and would change the subject. To this day, I have never experienced something so paranormal before or since that night. I remember years later driving through that neck of the woods and seeing that the house was bought and even had Christmas lights up for the holidays. I hope whoever lived there was able to make it a home because it really was beautiful. Wow, I did it. I wrote my story out. I might just have to have an extra cup of sleepy time tea tonight and hope it doesn't crop up in my dreams. I hope that others enjoy this story. It is all true and is the sole reason why I still believe in ghosts. Even if any other event can be explained away, no one has ever accurately debunked the disembodied footsteps and rocking chair from that night. This next submission is from 11-year-old listener Ruby. I believe Ruby is the youngest to ever submit to the true horror episodes. My name is Ruby, and this is my story. It was a quiet day in fall, and I was on a walk in the most peaceful part of my large neighborhood. I always liked walking alone, and hated when my mother insisted that we go together. I was alone on this seemingly perfect day, happy to get some time outside away from my toxic friends. I looked both ways before crossing the silent street. The silence was only broken by the song of birds and squirrels. I reached the petite library box and opened it by the nimble handle. Looking through the books, I eventually got bored and turned around to leave as I usually did. But when I turned to the street, I saw a figure. I froze in place at the sight of it. It was a, well, I don't know how to describe it. It was a slender shadow with no arms. My breathing felt tight and loud. Everything went quiet. The creature suddenly opened its large, glowing white eyes. That didn't scare me, just surprised. Those eyes were not threatening at all, though. So calm. I'm sorry about the shortness of the story. I'm a busy girl. Ha ha ha. (laughs) Thank you, Ruby. Next up is a submission from Alex, and Alex called it Kosovo. This is a story from my first deployment. We were in Kosovo, this tiny country that no one really knows about. We were hunting smugglers in the forest of the mountains, watching these known smuggling routes for days at a time. I can say that we saw plenty of things horrible enough to fill your inbox, but only one night was something truly scary. We had been out on this observation post, or OP, for a few days. The nights dropped into the negative teens, and we couldn't risk having a fire that would be seen. I was on watch, which meant I had my NODs, night vision goggles, on, and was constantly scanning the forest around us. I was smoking, with the lit end of my cigarette inside a bullet casing to hide the glow, when a flicker of movement caught my attention. 
I looked and saw a woman wandering around at the dark, about 30 meters away from my position. Before I came to this cruel place, I'd have called her impossibly thin. She wandered through the dark, hair veiling her face, wearing a ragged nightgown. I pinched myself to make sure I hadn't fallen asleep, but I was awake. She was wandering around, noiseless in the fallen leaves that made silence impossible. I couldn't take my eyes off her, so I blindly nudged my boots around until it made contact with my buddy, who let me know he was awake by squeezing my ankle. NODs, now! I hissed at him as quietly as I could. Watch my laser. Our rifles are equipped with a laser that can only be seen under night vision, so I hit her with the beam. I heard him fumbling to get his goggles up while I lazed her. It was so bitterly cold while I waited. Name redacted. I can't see her breath, he said. It was easily in the teens, but there was no mist in front of her face. My own rapidly increasing breath was fogging in front of me, my cigarette long since forgotten. This long into a deployment, I'm five foot nine, 200 pounds of mean and muscle and kit, and I am terrified of whatever is in these woods with us. And then, she just walked off into the night. We woke up the lieutenant and told him what we saw. He told us we weren't funny and to let him sleep. And to this day, I just don't know what happened out there. I hope you like the story, and thank you again for the spooky goodness you bring to many of us. Back in March, I received an email from a listener named Sia. They wrote... I was listening to episode 10, True Horror, Making Pasta for Dinner. At 50 minutes and 35 seconds, you start a story about someone's hat man experience. I didn't know other people called him hat man. I wanted to let you know, even if it's pointless, my experience with him. I've seen him my whole life. I used to be very scared of him when I was little, but as I got older, he became somewhat comforting to see, and the nature of his visits changed. He no longer came to disturb me and scare me. He eventually would just watch me sleep, or sit at the end of my bed, sometimes pace my room like he was waiting. He isn't my only visitor, but I'm 26 now, and haven't seen Hat Man in about four years. Four years ago, he saved me from something truly much more demonic, something so powerful and terrifying. Since that night, I haven't seen him again. I think about him a lot because I don't fully understand what happened that night, but I know he saved me from something much, much worse than himself, and I wonder why. I wrote back to Sia and said, I'm so happy you wrote to me about your experience with the hat man. I like to collect stories about him. He seems to penetrate so many parts of our culture and different people's lives. Yours fascinates me to no end because I believe you're the first person to tell me they had a positive experience with this entity. It seems most people are terrified of him and want him to go away, and the fact that you found comfort in his presence is so interesting. Would you mind sharing more about the demonic entity he saved you from? If not, I totally understand. Thank you so much for writing. Sia was kind enough to write back and allow me to share even more of their experience with the infamous hat man with all of you. They wrote, It sounds so crazy trying to type this out because 
It doesn't feel like it was real. But it was. I know it was. I'm sorry I can't be more specific with the image of what I saw. I'm literally shaking typing this, and I feel a bit embarrassed. I've only ever shared this with my friend Teresa because she is also visited by other entities slash beings. Here's a longish but short version of what happened when I saw it. That night was normal, but I found myself in sleep paralysis. Mostly annoyed because I was just stuck there and there was nothing I could see. My room and everything seemed so normal, but then it got progressively more intense. I couldn't see anything at first, but I felt something very powerful and the air in the room became very stiff slash hot. I started to panic and started a little prayer. I was raised Catholic and even though I don't practice, it felt like that was the only thing that was going to protect me. After a moment, I saw this thing. It was the most demonic being I've ever seen. And I was truly terrified. I tried harder and harder to pray, but it was in my mind at this point. It made me forget all the prayers I learned as a child, and I couldn't even properly think straight, like it was blocking my brain from doing anything. Normally in sleep paralysis, you can't move, you can't speak, but you are at least in full control of your own mind. But I had no control over my mind or my thoughts. The only thing I felt was fear. I wanted to die. I could see it getting closer. I could feel it all around me and inside of me. But it wasn't all around me. It was off to the side of my bed. I could barely breathe and it seemed almost happy. Like happy it had this power over me. I honestly did not think I was going to make it out of the situation. It got even closer and at this point I thought he might be the devil or at least a demon of some kind because that's what he looked like, just not human. It removed my blankets off of me. I sort of had the sense it wanted to take me, but then it just stopped. It was no longer looking at me, it was looking across my room. At this point, its hold on me wasn't as strong and I was able to move. I sat up and looked to see what it was looking at, and it was the hat man. I could feel whatever the hat man was feeling, and it was like my skin was boiling with rage and fear, like I belonged to the hat man, and whatever this entity was, it was not welcomed by the hat man. It was so overwhelming and all happening very slowly, like forever, but also very fast. All of a sudden, they were standing face to face. I couldn't see Hatman's face, but I could see this demon's face, and I can't get the image out of my head because it was truly the most horrifying thing I've ever seen in my life. For a moment, I felt weak, like I was going to pass out, and I think I did because when I came to, the demonic thing was gone, and the Hatman was just there at the end of my bed. And he seemed furious, but also very weak and defeated. I think he saved me. But I'm not sure why, and I'm not sure from what. When I finally was able to get out of the paralysis, I was sitting at the end of my bed shaking, still barely able to breathe and very weak. My lights were on and my room was a million degrees even though it was in the middle of winter. 
I haven't seen the hat man since, and I've hardly had sleep paralysis since. Which is wild, because it's been something so constant in my life that I felt like I did something wrong. Like it was taken away from me somehow. Which I realize now sounds kind of silly. I'm a flight attendant now, and on certain overnights, the hotels we stay in are haunted. There's a few that have been blacklisted by the company, and they won't even allow us to stay there anymore because of them being haunted and things happening to some of the crews. But some have yet to be blacklisted, and when I stay there, I always find myself being visited, or in sleep paralysis, sometimes in the middle of the day, sometimes at night. But still, no hat man. Just stuck. This next submission is a Wendigo story from Sarah Moore. The year was 2019. My dad and I went to the cemetery, one that we always go to when we go on vacation to the ranch. It was dark. The sun had just went down when we stopped there. The second we got out of the car, we heard this terrifying, I don't even know, nothing like a sound a human could make and nothing an animal could have made, that loud-ass, deep bellowing sound. And it happened two times in a row, and never did it again. Then my dad says, It's okay. Whatever it is, it's across the street. We're fine. But I have a weird thing where my eyes tear up when I hear about real ghosts or demons, so I started tearing up, and then I followed my dad in, and the gate hit him on the way in, and I don't mean like, oh, the gate closed, like, no, it really hit him, like it was pushed. But he didn't notice, and so I told him, Dad, I'm seeing a lot of signs. And he didn't know what I meant, so we were standing there expecting to feel or see old friends and have a good time. Then, after literally a minute of being there, my dad felt something was at the far end of the lot, and then I heard something behind me, and he heard it too, and it didn't feel okay at that end either. And then my dad felt the thing that was across the street coming for us, and getting closer to the car, my dad told me, we need to go, we need to go now. And we ran fast to the car, and my dad said, bye guys, and I look back and I say, bye. I then see a red kind like an orb or light or whatever you want to call it, and then I changed my bye into goodbye, and I told it, you are not allowed to follow us. And then on the way home at the same time, I saw a shadow person on the left side of the road, and my dad saw a red orb on the right side of the road. That was the shortest two hours of my life. It was like time was lost, and my dad felt the same way. In the morning, my dad called me and said, Sarah, I know what it was. I told him, I don't want to know, do I? And he didn't say anything for a few seconds, then said, Probably not, but you should know. I thought about it and hesitantly said, Okay, I guess. And all he said was, It was a Wendigo. This second-to-last submission is from Tracy Carvel, who is a frequent author on the show. And while Tracy has entertained us with many fictional horror stories, they've chosen to share their real horror story with us. So, here we go. 
I've always been what some people call a sensitive, seeing or sensing things that other people don't. It doesn't bother me anymore. It's normal to me. But it's probably what sparked my interest in the supernatural. I've seen a few ghosts here and there and gotten good and bad vibes from different buildings, but most of these things I've seen as a visitor or someone just passing through. The story I want to share with you is one that's a bit more personal to me. When I was a child, my parents, my sister, our dog, and I lived in a nice big terraced house in a nice quiet street in Kent. We were about as normal a family as you could hope to find. My sister and I fought, she was outgoing and rebellious, I was the quiet bookworm older sister, and our parents both worked hard to provide for us. I don't remember when I first started to notice strange things in the house, but it seemed to come to a head when I was around 13 or 14. At this time, my parents would sometimes leave me alone in the house while my sister went to see friends and they worked, or if they all went out somewhere and I didn't want to go. During these times, when it was just me and the dog in the house, I would occasionally hear noises that I couldn't account for. Shuffling movement, like someone didn't want to be noticed. The sound of an older man coughing from out in the hall, a bit too loud and distinct to be the neighbors. Objects moving in the corner of my eye, a powerful sense of being watched, and sometimes, as I was coming down the stairs from upstairs, I would see, just for a second, but clear as day, the figure of a man standing at the bottom of the stairs, looking up at me. All of this really frightened me, but my parents were so normal and down to earth, I didn't say anything because I didn't expect them to believe me, and my sister would have just laughed, so I didn't say anything to her either. I told a few friends at school, but either they thought I was making it up or thought it was cool. I didn't think it was cool. I was scared. I started to hate being alone in the house, and I tried to avoid it. But I was a solitary child, and I didn't have many close friends to go to when everyone else was out. So sometimes, I had no choice. Then things started to get worse. Sometimes I would walk into my room and see objects drop as if hurriedly put down by an unseen hand, caught in the act. My bedroom door would unlatch itself and swing open. And the worst thing was when, sometimes at night, as I was starting to fall asleep, I would get the very distinct impression of the mattress sinking under the weight of someone sitting down on the bed beside me. But when I opened my eyes and looked up, the room was empty. Eventually, I had had enough, and I managed to get my mother alone, and I told her everything. I half expected her to laugh or to scold me for making things up, but she didn't. She looked at me in a strange way for a moment, then asked me what the man at the bottom of the stairs looked like. I described him as best I could. Older, thin gray hair, wearing a sort of brown, old-fashioned suit. She just nodded. Have you seen him too? I asked her. And she nodded again. I was astonished. I couldn't believe it. Then she said, Don't tell your sister or your father. Your sister will get scared and dad won't understand. It's our secret, 
okay? I agreed, and I asked her who the man was and what he wanted. She replied by saying, You don't have to be afraid of him. He will never, ever hurt you. Then my mother sat me down and told me a story. When I was very small, about two or three years old, my grandparents, my mother's parents, lived in a house directly across the road from us. I don't remember this, but this is what my mother has told me. When my grandfather, who we called Grampy, died, my grandmother, who I called Nana, decided she didn't want to be in the big house all alone. So she sold it and moved out into a smaller place. My parents naturally helped her to pack up and move. As they were getting the last of Nana's things out of the house and loading them into the moving van, Mum helped Nana do one final sweep of the house before locking up for the last time. Nana went on ahead, and Mum found herself alone in the house for a few minutes. Sitting at the bottom of the stairs, she thought back to all the memories of the house, of her parents living there, and she suddenly felt a sense of Grampy being there still. She hated the idea of him being there with strangers, so she invited him to come and live with them in their house, our house, across the road. Apparently, he took her up on the offer. You were his favorite grandchild from the moment you were born, Mum told me. I'm not surprised he keeps an eye on you. He'd be devastated if he knew he'd frightened you. She went on to tell me how happy she was when she first saw him, that he'd come across the road to be with us. She said that it made her a little bit less sad about losing him. I gave all this a lot of thought over the next few days. Mom found some old photos and pointed Grampy out to me, and I recognized the man from the bottom of the stairs right away. The next time I felt the weight on my bed at night, I kept my eyes closed and whispered something like, I know it's you, Grampy. I'm sorry I was scared. Thank you for watching over me. A few minutes later, I felt the covers tug up around my shoulders. The feeling of two hands tucking me in. Then, the weight left. The same things continued to happen. The glimpses of the man at the bottom of the stairs the slight sounds of movement, objects moving slyly in the corner of my eye and dropping as I turned, and the occasional feeling of someone sitting on my bed and tucking me in at night. But they didn't scare me anymore. They comforted me. I knew it was Grampy keeping an eye on me. Now, when I was left home alone, it never bothered me. The house felt safe. When my parents eventually sold the house and moved away, long after my sister and I moved out, I asked Mum if she'd ask Grampy to follow her again. She said she had, but she didn't get the impression that he had this time. She said that she'd stopped feeling his presence in the house around the time my sister and I left. I guess he felt it was okay to move on then. I hope he did, and I'm very thankful to him for being my guardian angel throughout my childhood and teenage years. This is our real second to the last submission. (laughs) It is from Brandon. 
My name is Brandon. I am 33 years old and live in North Carolina. When I was two, my dad passed away to an unfortunate rifle accident. My mom told me that after a few years of his passing, I started having nightmares and waking up crying and screaming. And when she would come to my room to check on me, she would ask what was wrong. And all I would say was that the man in the hole was trying to get me and take me away. This went on for quite some time, the same nightmare over and over. Then one afternoon, we went and visited my dad's grave to place flowers. And when we got to the gravesite, my mom told me I started crying and screaming for us to leave. And when she asked why, she said I told her that this is where the man in the hole was at and was going to take me away. I was pointing at my dad's grave. Thanks for all the great stories and love the show. Thanks, Brandon. And the last story of the night. I was saving for last for a reason. It's a cautionary and absolutely terrifying submission from Lynn Esquivel. Lynn called it The Roper. This is a true story. It's meant to act as a warning. I live in Hawaii, on the beautiful island of Oahu, and when I was 19 years old, I met a roper. I'm not sure if roper is the correct term, or if there even is a term for it at all, but that's what I've been calling it. All I know is that I could have died that night, or worse. One morning, during winter, I went to the local mall. I was passing through Sears and I happened to stop in the junior section to look at some clothes. That's when I met her. She was a thin, white lady who looked to be in her mid to late 40s. She wore a long-sleeved, billowy top and a long, billowy, ankle-length skirt. She was holding a baby in her arms and pushing an empty stroller with a blanket and a toy in the seat. The baby was covered in a blanket, with the baby's head obscured by a portion of the blanket that folded into a makeshift hood. I was on my way out of the store when the lady stopped me. She commented on how pretty I was, and I awkwardly thanked her, a bit surprised by her brazen compliment that seemed to come out of nowhere. Had she been watching me? She appeared to be absolutely stunned by my beauty and asked if I model. Now, I'm an average-looking girl, And I'm smart enough to know that if people randomly say that you're pretty or beautiful, it's because they want something, most likely sexual in nature. But this was coming from a lady, and she was not a lesbian from what I could gather. It's what she said next that intrigued me. She explained that she was excited to meet me because they had been looking for someone like me. They being herself and her husband. Her husband, she explained, was a well-known producer. He produced some short films, documentaries, and other projects. She listed off a bunch of his project titles and asked if I had heard of them. I replied that I did not. She acted surprised because she claimed they were well-known. Again, I said no, embarrassed about my ignorance. She continued that her husband was famous for his philanthropy and rattled off a list of organizations with which he had collaborated, again asking me if I was familiar with any of them. I replied that I was not. 
At that time, I hoped I was not insulting her or her husband by not being well-versed in his line of work. I also hoped I did not seem too young and naive. She spoke with such excitement about him that her energy began to make me excited as well. She then went on to explain that, for their latest project, they had been looking to cast a particular kind of girl, and she believed I was perfect. This is the point where I was completely interested. My dream job, actually, is to be an actress, and the thought of getting some acting credits without having to go through tedious, rejection-filled auditions was incredible. Yes, it did seem too good to be true, but I've read articles about actresses being found standing in line at a bank, and I thought, why couldn't my success story be that I was found passing through a Sears in a mall? She said that I had the look they wanted and the personality they wanted. Although she had only spoken to me briefly, she said she could tell all that. I wondered what kind of look they were after. I'm tan, short, and of Japanese-Filipino descent. Maybe they wanted an ethnic girl, a tan girl. I was excited at the possibilities. Maybe if I did a great job on this, they would use me again in other projects, and my career would skyrocket quickly. I couldn't believe it all. That was when she insisted. She insisted that I come to their home that same night. The reason, she said, was because she wanted her husband to meet me. To meet me before he set his mind on someone else. She said they were in the process of finding a girl, and she did not want him to choose anyone else. I was grateful that she had so much confidence in me, and I certainly did not want to lose this opportunity to another eager girl, so I agreed to take her contact information. She shifted her baby, I assumed to get a pen and paper from her purse. This was not the case. Instead, she proceeded to expose her breast. She then situated her baby in front of it and began to feed him. I shifted my gaze in order to give her a bit of privacy, all while trying to maintain a calm visage. I've heard of mothers breastfeeding in public, but the manner in which she approached it took me aback. There was no, excuse me while I feed him, he's starving, or I'm just going to feed him in a bit, I hope you don't mind. It was as if she assumed I knew her well enough that there was no need for pleasantries. If I were to be honest, though, it half seemed as though she wanted to expose herself to me. As crazy as that sounded. I say this because she did not respectfully cover the majority of her breast and used her baby to shield her exposed nipple from my view. Rather, she uncovered her breast in entirety before languidly adjusting her baby into the feeding position. Hurriedly, I began to check my own purse for a pen and paper, thankful for the excuse to look anywhere else. With my head tilted down toward my purse, I muttered something about how cute babies are when they're hungry to ease the tension. She proudly stated that this was her seventh baby. Impressed, I commented that her figure doesn't show it at all. It really didn't. I wrote her information down and we said our goodbyes. She made sure that I agreed to stop by their house that night. Her husband had an office at home, as well as in many other locations, and she wanted him to meet me, but more importantly, to go over the film and the script with me since it was still in its beginning stages. I agreed, trying to mask my excitement. I didn't want to seem too eager in order to offset my naivety from earlier. 
To this day, I cannot remember what I wrote on the paper since this happened so many years ago. I want to say that I had my phone number and a name. I can't, however, remember what her name was. Perhaps it's because there's a part of me that wanted to put it all behind me so much that I forgot her name. What I do remember was that I was not given an address. That I remember. She said that I should call her when I reached the area at about 7 p.m., and she would guide me over the phone on how to find the house. She explained that their home address would be obscured by greenery, and that the streetlights did not shine close enough to their address post for me to see in the evening. Mobile phones did not have GPS capability at the time of my story, so I was not alarmed when she didn't give me her address. Her explanation seemed legitimate, and who was I to look a gift career in the mouth? Back then, my mobile phone was a Sony Ericsson push-button that displayed pixelated numbers and letters against a dull green screen. I did not enter her information into my phone because it was written on the piece of paper. When it was about 6.30 that night, I started my drive. Alone. Stupidly alone. I think I went alone because I did not want to seem like a scared child who needed a chaperone or an immature kid who needed a friend for company. I wanted to appear capable, like I could represent myself without anyone's help in a business meeting, a career meeting, a meeting that could change my life. And that it did, but not in the way I had hoped. I should have at least told someone, that way at least someone would know my whereabouts. I think the reason I didn't even tell my friends is because every other time I told them about an acting endeavor I was attempting, or an audition I was attending, it never panned out. I thought, not this time. I'm not going to jinx it by telling anyone. I was so dumb. When 7pm rolled around, I was in my car near the area where they lived, about to call her for directions. By the way, Another reason I believe this woman's story is because of the area in which they lived. I was told to drive to Lanikai. If you're not familiar, Lanikai is an affluent area whose homes sell for a median price of about $2 million or sometimes more. It stands to reason that a well-known philanthropic filmmaker would live in Lanikai. I dialed her number in my car, and she did not pick up until about the last ring, which made me worry that I drove there for nothing. After following some convoluted directions, I finally parked my car. Oddly, she told me to park my car across the street from their property, in an area where no streetlights fell. I did as she asked, not thinking much of it. After all, it was her property, and if she did not want my car in her driveway, that was her decision. I actually didn't see any cars in the driveway. So maybe they liked the look of an empty driveway, so as not to distract from the opulence of the house. Where I grew up, I'd describe my neighborhood as being relatively poor. The houses there had driveways packed with cars, adding to the overall ghetto feel of the place. She said she would come out to the driveway and meet me. A few minutes passed until she finally came out, which put me a bit on edge. The street seemed quite dark to me for 7pm, but it was winter, so I dismissed it. The sun was setting earlier than usual. Finally, I could see her walking down the driveway, 
and I left my car to walk across the street and meet her. She wore a different outfit, but it had the same look. It had the same long sleeve top and ankle-length skirt with a billowy movement. She reminded me of a hippie-turned-housewife with her medium-length blonde hair and her calm, airy way of speaking. She thanked me for coming and asked me if my drive was okay as we walked toward the main part of the house. I said everything was fine. As we walked, I quickly understood why it took her so long to meet me at the driveway. The property was massive. Walking in, the driveway opened into an outdoor, open-air atrium with a large stone floor and gargantuan stone fountain in the middle. I was unsure if there was a sculpture on the fountain because I didn't want to look like a silly, starstruck girl gawking at their house like it was a museum. I tried my best to just walk straight through as if it were all just mundane. The atrium then gave way to a large indoor area with a cobblestone floor and a few seating areas. The ceiling was so high that it looked, at first glance, like we were still outside. We actually walked and talked for a few minutes before we even reached the main part of the house. She mentioned that her husband wasn't home yet, but he would be arriving a little later to meet me. When we finally reached the main house, we walked to the kitchen. I felt a little strange just entering her home while still wearing my shoes, being used to removing them in the Asian tradition. She's white, I thought. They wear their shoes indoors. Well, she did, anyway, so I followed suit. She appeared to be the only one home. I sat on a bar stool, and she offered me something to drink. I was actually thirsty, so I asked for a glass of water. She served it to me with ice. As I picked up the glass, I thought quickly about a story I read about someone being poisoned from an iced drink where the poison was slowly released as the ice melted. I touched the glass to my lips so as not to seem rude, then put it down, using the urge to engage her in conversation as an excuse not to drink. I told her that she had a great view from her kitchen window. She did. From the window, the view of the beach ahead was vast, but because the sun had set, it also looked ominous. She thanked me, and eyed my drink as we had more small talk. She suggested we move into the living room, where she could explain more about the film and show me a portfolio. I agreed, excited to talk about the project that would start me on my path. We stood up to leave the kitchen, and she motioned that I forgot my drink. I mumbled something to her about just having dental work done, and that the ice would make my teeth too sensitive. She nodded and I followed her to the living room. It was the smaller living room, according to her. A larger living room was on the other side of the house. On the way to the living room, we passed an open den that I assumed was where her husband sat while he worked from home. There was a large brown desk and bookcases built into the walls. It was full of books and knickknacks. When we reached the smaller living room, we sat on a long, soft, white couch. She excused herself to get the portfolio. When she was gone, I thought that I should at least call my friend Wendy and tell her where I was so that at least somebody knew. I opened my flip phone and noticed that I did not have a signal. That was strange since I had just used my phone across the street while I was in my car. She returned to the living room and she watched me put my phone away. She asked me if everything was okay and I nodded. 
She was holding a portfolio in one hand and her baby in the other. Having the baby there with us put me at ease somehow. We spoke more about the film and she explained it was not going to be a documentary this time, but more of a creative piece. She was being quite vague and I asked again about her husband's background and his work. She got the idea that I was not convinced of his credentials and she defensively asked me if I wanted to see one of his films or documentaries because she could play one for me. I said there was no need, afraid that I had offended her and ruined my chance at stardom. I changed the subject and pointed to the portfolio, asking her if that was the script. It honestly looked too thin to be a manuscript. She shifted the baby to her other side in order to open the portfolio. There was no manuscript inside it. Instead, there were just a few pages of drawings. They were more like penciled sketches. She turned to a page with a picture of two dolphins intertwined. She then proceeded to repeat what made me so uncomfortable earlier that day. She exposed her breast again in order to feed her baby. However, this time she had no cover for his head like she had in the store. She left the baby to feed on her breast in my full view. I don't know if it was because she did not feel the need to cover up in her own home, but it still made me feel uneasy and uncomfortable. Perhaps it was the hippie side of her that viewed it as a natural thing. I didn't know what her reasoning was, but I wish she wasn't doing that. She looked at me earnestly then, telling me she wanted to explain the sketch of the dolphins to me. She began to tell me, with her eyes becoming more and more crazy, that she had a dream. In her dream, she said she saw me with her husband, and we were naked. In her dream, she said her husband and I started to make love. Then she said, we turned into dolphins. When she said this, I immediately felt my insides turn. I did not react though. I wanted to see where this insane story was going and if there was any way of salvaging that feeling I had when I wanted to be there for my career because that feeling was quickly fading away. She continued her story, becoming more and more emotional as she sat there still breastfeeding her baby. She said that she was so happy watching her husband and I make love. She said that pure love and energy was emanating from our entwined bodies. As she said this, her eyes started to tear. She said they were tears of joy. Finally, she was done recounting her insane dream. She then spoke to me with tears still welling in her eyes. She said she actually wanted me to make love to her husband because she knew we could create something beautiful together. She said that he was a good man and a gentle lover and that I would see when I meet him. She said that she knew exactly what she was saying and she was completely convinced this should be done. To me, she just looked like a crying maniac with a baby on her boob. She wanted to know what I thought. Before I could say anything, we were interrupted. Her husband came home. He walked right past us in the living room, headed for the den. He barely made eye contact with us as he passed and barely said hello. It sounded like he muttered some type of greeting when the wife looked up to acknowledge him, but it was unintelligible. He did not seem preoccupied, just disinterested. 
she excused herself to speak with him and left me alone in the smaller living room. I quickly pulled out my phone once she left. I felt scared. When I flipped the phone's mouthpiece down, the screen still flashed that there was no signal. I felt lost and trapped. I slowly started to panic. No one knew I was there. I didn't know the address to this place, so even if I called the police, I couldn't tell them where I was. My car wasn't even parked in their driveway, so they could attest that they did not have any visitors. Also, they wouldn't be guilty of kidnapping me because I went there voluntarily. I had a sinking feeling and couldn't believe I had put myself in that situation. She returned to the living room, this time without the baby. She told me to follow her into the den so I could meet her husband formally. I followed her, all the while trying to remember if we had taken any turns on our way to the main house, and if I could remember how to get out to the driveway. The property had an open floor plan, and I don't remember passing any doorways, and it comforted me that at least they couldn't have locked me in the house, as far as I could tell. I stepped into the den, and her husband was standing behind the large desk. She introduced me, and he stuck his hand out for me to shake. I shook his hand. He seemed jaded and unimpressed. His wife chimed in to ease the silence, saying that I was unfamiliar with his work. I wished she hadn't said that, on the slightest chance that this whole ordeal really was based on a legitimate acting opportunity. I didn't want to blow it by offending the producer with my ignorance of his work. He mentioned a few of his works to me and asked if I knew of them. I said no. He shot a look to his wife, and she immediately said that I should watch one of them. They had a sample that I could see, and she recommended I watch it to get a feel for his style, to see if it was compatible with me. I said okay, thinking that we would go to their larger living room, watch the piece, and finally get on track with this whole acting gig. Instead, the husband walked about 60 feet past the bookcases in the den and up three wide steps to an even wider platform blocked by two large sliding shoji rice paper screen doors. He stood in the middle of the sliding screens and pushed them far apart, opening them completely. Beyond was a bedroom with a huge bed. It was so huge that it looked like two California king-size beds pushed next to each other. He sat on the front edge of the bed and faced both his wife and I as we stood in the den. His wife walked over to join him, telling me over her shoulder that we could watch his work on the television that was set up next to the bed. As she made her way toward the bed, she added that she would get the VCR ready so we could watch it. I stayed in the den, telling her that I had to make a quick phone call first. She seemed fine with it, and joined her husband on the bed after she fiddled with the VCR. I grabbed my phone and saw there was still no signal. However, I immediately brought the phone up to my ear and pretended like I was talking to someone, because it was then that I noticed it. As I stood in the den, my eyes took in the bookcases. They were filled with books and knickknacks, but no pictures. 
There were no pictures of her, no pictures of him, and most disturbingly, no pictures of their children. Anywhere. Come to think of it, I did not see any pictures of them or their kids in the kitchen, or the smaller living room, or any pictures in what I could see of the bedroom. I remembered she told me that she had seven kids when we met. Yet there was no trace of them in this house. I did not even see any toys. I don't even recall seeing any kids' shoes around the foyer. In fact, there were no shoes anywhere. Did they even really live there? Is that why I wasn't allowed to park in the driveway? All I knew was that I needed to leave immediately. The wife motioned for me to join them in the bedroom. From the den, I said that I was sorry, but I had to go. I explained that I received a call from my mom and there was a family emergency. I further added that I told my mom that I was coming from Lanikai and that I should be home in no more than 20 minutes. What the wife said next made my skin crawl. The husband and wife looked at each other knowingly, and then the wife stood up off the bed. Her face looked quite different now. She did not have her usual flighty, hippie, carefree demeanor. She looked dead serious, and her eyes were focused on me. Not in a questioning way, but in a grave tone, she said, You got a phone call. She took a step down off the bed's platform, but before she could walk toward me, I was already saying my goodbyes and that I would call them later, all the while speedily moving toward the smaller living room to make my way out of the damned house. I speed walked through the atriums and then started into a slight jog to my car. I entered my car as fast as I could, and although I didn't know which way to drive to exit Lanikai, I'd at least be driving away from that house. My heart was beating out of my chest. As I passed the house, I saw the wife standing in the driveway. She creepily waved and smiled at me as I drove away. Creepy, crazy bitch, I thought. She was a roper. A roper is someone who lures or ropes a young girl into having sex with a man in order to birth a baby for them. Most likely, these babies are sold off and the girls are imprisoned to continue the baby-making ring, or they are killed, and a new girl is found to take her place. It made sense that this lady did not look like she gave birth to seven kids, not by a long shot. Thinking about how easy it was for her to get me to that house, I shuddered at the thought of how many times she had done it before. It was so easy, too. Under the guise of being a new mother, how could she hurt anyone? I am still unsure why my roper breastfed in front of me. I assume it was to make me feel comfortable around her nakedness, or nakedness in general. That is why women are ropers, and not men. Young girls would more likely trust a mature woman, rather than a man at any age. Many young girls also dream of becoming a model or an actress, so it isn't hard for a roper to catch her target's interest. She just had to approach with the right one. My roper chose wrong with me, asking about modeling at first, but I was the dumb one who let her know that acting was my interest. Ropers probably also use vacation rentals in upscale neighborhoods to sell their stories about being a famous producer or a successful model scout. Maybe they just break into a place that they know is unoccupied for a while. After all, 
they just need that one night. Most likely, the couple sets up a cell phone signal blocker to isolate the girls, which explains why my roper looked like she knew there was no way I could have received a phone call from my mom that night. That's how they get you. Look at how far I got into that house before the lack of pictures raised my red flags. I imagine that this awful couple victimized many other girls before me. I imagine that these girls made it all the way to the bedroom and sat on the bed next to that couple under the assumption that they were about to watch a harmless film. I imagine that the girls were then coerced into sexual acts with that man, maybe once or even several times. These girls then probably became pregnant and that's when the couple offered to be their financial support system until the babies were carried to term. Being young and in trouble, the frightened girls would have said yes to having the baby, not knowing the child would later be sold. What's worse is that if the poor girls objected to the agreement, one of two things would happen. One, the couple would imprison the girls until they gave birth. Or two, if the girls were defiant about having sex with a man whatsoever, then the couple would just kill them. The second scenario is what would have happened to me. Thanks for listening. Thank you so much to everyone who submitted, including those whose stories did not make it on the show. Like I said, I got so many submissions and I'm so grateful for it. Um, thank you to all of you for sticking around. It was a def- I told you it would be a supersized episode and here we are. What is it? Two and a half hours later, almost. <laughs> um, I really hope you enjoyed all these stories. I did. Uh, I got the heebie-jeebies every single time I recorded this. Um, I had to record at night because my neighborhood has been incredibly loud and recording true stories at night is terrifying. Some of these, oh my God, some of them got me so bad. I had the worst nightmare last night. Oh my God. Um, join, uh, the Facebook group. If you'd like to discuss this week's episode, um, I'm sure a lot of you will have lots of things to say and lots of questions. Uh, there's a link in the show notes. Also talk to me on Twitter, Twitter at scare you to sleep. I apologize for that noise. My neighbors are setting off many, many fireworks as they are. I'm sure in your neighborhoods as well. Um, I've been trying to record around them and this is the tail end. So I'm just going to keep going. Okay. I'm so sorry about the fireworks. I will try to minimize them in post. Um, but, uh, yeah, check it out on Twitter, uh, at scary to sleep, Instagram at scary to sleep. Feel free to ask me questions. I don't know the answers to a lot of the questions you might have about this story, but feel free to put them out there. Maybe the authors are looking and reading. Sometimes they are around in the Facebook or Instagram. They can answer questions for you. Um, Again, you can also join Scare You to Eat, which is the Facebook group where we talk about food and share our food and all that good stuff. I won't keep you long since I have kept you now for over two hours. Um, Okay, now there's a lot of music. I am definitely going to go. I love you all so much. Thank you so much for sticking around. Thank you so much for spreading the news about the show. It really means a lot to me. Um, I, like I said uh, last week, July's numbers are really important for reasons I cannot tell you. So please tell a friend, tell a coworker, tell your nieces and nephews, um, tell your siblings, tell uh, your preacher, tell your teacher, um, tell the mayor, write to your congressman, uh, tell them all about scary to sleep. <laughs> all right, everyone, um, go get some sleep. 
and sweet dreams. Our faith is our shield. If Altman was divinely inspired, why did he have to die? Our sword. Back off! Stay back! And our guide. There are those who will infiltrate. I want you to go undercover. And corrupt us. When do I start? It will make us whole. Clean incision. I'll clean up the bleeding. This may be the worst idea I've ever had. Dead Space Deep Cover is available now. New episodes every other week. You can find Dead Space Deep Cover on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at bloody.fm.